Okay, so I'm in Luke 1, verses 26. Uh, it means I can be more free and say whatever I want today because I am not on film. That's great. So uh, we'll, just, we'll just have fun. Um, okay, I'm in Luke 1. Let's start in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin who was pledged to be married to a... Oh. It's on. You did it, guys. <laughs> oh, look. I... <laughs> I'm just going to tell him, yay, it's on. Okay, let me mute me here. So now there are a few, there are a few minutes behind us, so now they're going to hear me uh, do all that hoopla. But okay, here we go. All right, uh, verse, uh, let's just start again. Verse 26, Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. 13-year-old Mary, remember this, angel, boom, walks in. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Love verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, uh, she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. And here it is. This is really the crux of what I'm getting at today. It's one of my favorite verses, actually. And here's what Mary's response is. I am the Lord's servant. Say that with me. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me, may it be unto me according to your word. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us unpack this. And Father, would you impact our life with this word? Would you actually change us? Um, may this word be even a mirror that we gaze into and you give us greater insight into who we are and into who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. So uh, I want to talk about a couple things. I want to take a look at Mary's town. I want to take a look at Mary's background. I want to take a look at this visit that, that the angel Gabriel does. Um, and then I want to take a, take a look at Mary's uh, sort of uh, this supernatural experience she has, um, and then her pregnancy. And then the most important thing I want to actually take a look at is Mary's yes, because that's that final verse. It's Mary's yes. What is Mary actually saying yes to? And then um, the idea here is that you would actually begin to look at your own life and go, where am I on my own journey of yes? 
So let's, let's take a look. Uh, so Nazareth, um, I, this is hard to even describe what this is, but Nazareth is literally the least desirable um, part of the Roman Empire at this time. So Caesar's ruling over in, in Rome, and Nazareth is like kind of the armpit of the entire Roman Empire. There's no one that wants anything to do um, with, Na- with Nazareth. So it's, it's certainly not a place you would dream uh, to go on holiday or vacation. It's just in the middle of the desert. It's on this little hill. It overlooks a valley. I've been there. It is absolutely nothing special. And I don't know if you remember, but one of the disciples was named Nathaniel. And do you remember what he said about it? Anybody remember? He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth. So this was actually before he was uh, one of Jesus' disciples, and someone's talking to him about this Jesus, and he would become one of Jesus' disciples, and he totally throws Jesus and Jesus' place where he grew up, Nazareth, where Mary's from, under the bus, and goes, can anything good come out of this gnarly place? So he's literally saying, I have no respect for this ugly city, and I don't even want to listen to anyone who comes out of this place. So he, he's just totally throwing the whole city kind of under the, under the bus, and it's literally a know-nothing um, place. So I just, just think with me a minute. We, just, we started with this First Peter verse that said that, that God uh, sort of planned this from eternity past, right? He knew what was going to happen. Of all the places he could pick, maybe the south of France, uh, maybe if you like the mountains, Colorado, maybe the Florida Keys, maybe I, I can, uh, the, the, the Caribbean islands. I mean, there's all sorts of places that he could pick. And yet God picks this know-nothing uh, town in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert that nobody even likes. And this is really, really important because I think what you're going to actually begin to see here is we're not only going to get to know probably the character of Mary and some of her background, but more importantly, we're going to get to know the character of Mary's God. I think it's very important even as we sort of find ourselves in this Christmas story. So let me give you a little bit of background on Mary um, and and even Mary's people. So at this point in time, the the people of God were absolutely downtrodden. Um, All of Israel had been conquered by Alexander the Great, and then the Romans had conquered the Greeks. So now it's being ruled by Rome, and uh, there had been been short periods of renewal where the people um, had renewed their hope and faith in God, but then there's these huge periods just of of where where paganism kind of rules and the people run from God, and it, it actually seems like to, the, to, I think, the people of God that God had stopped speaking. He hadn't spoken in 400 years. And Israel was actually divided into two countries. There's like this big civil war that's going on. And then even of the, of the two, the division that's going on in Israel, um, then there's four political groups that all hate each other and are at vehement odds with each other. You have the Essenes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots. And then you have the Romans in there. And so there is just tension and hatred and division all around. Around. On every single side, there is tension and hatred. It, it, it sounds a little bit like America today, doesn't it? And that's what Jesus came into. Like, Jesus literally is born into this time of such turmoil and such division and such hatred. So let's think of this little girl, Mary, 13 years old. She was poor, uh, dirt poor. Uh, she would have probably been illiterate. She would have been uneducated. Um, she, she had a know-nothing social status from a know-nothing town. And if the angel Gabriel had not walked into Mary's life on this particular day, then, then Mary uh, would have probably done what literally hundreds and hundreds of other Hebrew girls had done before her. She would have eventually um, gotten married to a poor man. She would have had a bunch of kids, and she would have lived a poor life, and her kids would have lived a poor life, and then she would have died. 
But what happens is suddenly this angel, suddenly the very presence of God uh, breaks into Mary's life. And, and we tend to think this, the Christmas story just happened or, or God um, sort of, you know, it, it unfolded in the fullness of time. But I want to go, no, no, no. That's why we started with the Peter passage. The Christmas story was planned. The Lord Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, looked into eternity uh, future, from eternity past, and saw that, that, uh, that in Eden... Uh, people would reject God and in the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam and Eve would reject God and there would be huge separation and he actually saw that this young girl, Mary, would become the fulcrum point and Jesus would come through Mary that would, that would eventually lead all of us back to life, back to sort of Eden. So you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit looking ahead and why they pick a downtrodden, know-nothing city or town, it wasn't even a city, and a downtrodden, know-nothing girl gives you a lot of insight onto what God values and who he's looking for. So let's talk about this visit that happens. So Mary is, uh, we don't know exactly what she's doing, but she's there, and suddenly this uh, Gabriel appears. Now, Gabriel only, has only appeared three times in the whole Bible. So he appears with Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, he's just appeared with Zechariah. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And Zechariah actually didn't believe him, remember? And he was struck mute, like he couldn't even speak because he didn't believe uh, the angel. He didn't have faith in what the angel was telling him. And then the angel Gabriel appears to Mary right here. So uh, literally, I think a way that you would have to begin to think about this is the people of God are so downtrodden, they're so depressed, and all of a sudden, um, there is a light that is literally dawning. That's a, it, it is a passage out of Isaiah, but there's literally a light that is dawning, and yet... Um, the religious people of the day are so busy in fighting and, and fighting with one another and the politics of the day, which was Rome and these four political groups um, who were also religious groups, everyone is so busy fighting that no one has any idea that the, the, a, a dawn has just happened. No one. So everyone everywhere is literally missing what is happening because they are so busy and they're so consumed sort of with their own thing. In other words, Israel is dead asleep. Nazareth is dead asleep. The Roman Empire is not ready. The religious people of the day, the, the pastors, so to speak, are not ready. They miss this thing happening. And literally, there's this dawning that is happening, the inbreaking um, of, of King Jesus uh, through this young girl Mary is happening, and everyone is missing it. You, you know, the... <clears throat> I think you'd have to begin to think of this thing um, not unlike uh, where we are today and where we will probably be when Jesus comes again. Now, pause with me there. This isn't a, a message on the end times, but I want you to... Uh, Jesus is going to come back, and those of you who know anything or have read the Bible, when Jesus first rode in to Jerusalem to die, he rode in on a... Does anybody know? A donkey, that's right. Now, Revelation tells us that he'll ride back in. Does anybody know what he'll ride on? White horse. And what's interesting is Jesus actually says that the kingdom of God, when he returns, will come like a thief in the night. 
I want to suggest to you that if we are not very careful in, in the macro, so that is um, watching the times, watching what is happening, we could miss a dawn. We could miss something that God is doing. Then on the micro in our everyday lives, I think the tendency is that we are so busy, we are so consumed with whatever it is we're looking at, that we actually miss the power and the presence and move of God in our midst. Does that make sense? So Mary, this little 13-year-old girl, is the only person who gets it. A dawn is happening, and God chooses this little 13-year-old girl to actually capture what God is doing and to actually begin to see. So, so then we have this sort of supernatural um, experience, this holy overshadowing that Mary actually has. The Holy Spirit will come on you, uh, verse 35, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So I want you again to, to zoom out from a, from a macro big perspective. Um, Mary uh, is a distant great, 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 great granddaughter of a guy named King, anybody know? David. Now, now Joseph, what's really interesting, is uh, the guy that she's betrothed to. Um, he is a great, 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 great grandson of a guy named King David. And what's fascinating, and that's why you actually see Gabriel say it here, um, that the, uh, he actually talks about um, the, that this God will come, um, Son of the Most High, and I'm sort of, uh, I'm, I'm looking for it right here, but he comes to fulfill sort of this Davidic line. So, so what is absolutely uh, amazing is um, Mary now in her belly as the Holy Spirit overshadows her and all of a sudden she is pregnant even though she was a virgin um, she has in her belly literally the great 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 grandson of King David so what you begin to have is this whole Old Testament fulfillment. Remember, God exists from, from the beginning of time to the end of time, the bookends, if you will, and he exists through the entire thing. And all of a sudden, you begin to see this fulfillment sort of fulcrum on this little 13-year-old girl. So think about it like this. Mary also had a great, great, great bunch of times grandmother named Eve. And she had a great, 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 great grandfather named Adam, the very beginning of time, right? We read that in Genesis. And what you see is Adam and Eve fall, and Paul in, the, in Romans actually talks about Jesus being the second Adam. So literally, you get this, this uh, crazy sort of fulfillment um, in Mary because she's literally carrying in her belly the second Adam. So the first Adam brought us death. Remember, disobedience. He, he disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, and it created death and separation. The second Adam that's literally in her belly is King Jesus, who's going to bring life. He's going to bring redemption. He's going to bring peace. He's going to bring grace. So you have this little, uh, this little girl, and, and literally she's carrying the one who will reverse the curse that has been on all of humanity since the first Adam. Eve ate that fruit and ushered in death. The fruit of this little Mary's belly is going to usher in life, life everlasting. So, you know, I think the other thing that we got to take a look at here is, is the idea of Mary's pregnancy. And there's a, there's a certain um, symbolism throughout Scripture around improbable or impossible uh, births. If, if you go back to the Old Testament, you have Abraham and Sarah who give birth to Isaac. It's like an impossible thing. You also have Hannah who gives birth to a young prophet named Samuel. It was another impossible um, birth. 
you have uh, John the Baptist who's born by Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then it kind of culminates with Mary in this sort of over, holy overshadowing. And I think what begins to be um, portrayed here is the impossibility. Um, it's more than God just opening a dead womb. It's literally the impossibility of God bringing the dead to life. He's literally, it's a, it becomes a symbolic picture of us being born again in Jesus. So what was dead, what is impossible, is the thing that now is, it comes to life. And if, you, if we paused here and we stepped back and looked at our own lives, what I would begin to it, it, uh, encourage you or invite you to do this morning is begin to look at the areas of your life that are the least or the most insignificant or perhaps the most painful or the most disappointing the thing that you think, surely God can't use, the area that, that, that promotes the most pain in your journey, and that is the area, the thing that is most painful, most difficult, perhaps most insignificant, is often the thing that God can take and infuse with his spirit in his life and use it for the greatest good and the greatest glory. God loves to use uh, the foolish things, the 12-year-old illiterate girl, 13-year-old illiterate girl. God use, loves to use the broken things and, and infuse them with the life of Christ Jesus and birth his life in him and through him. So literally, we have um, Mary with this pregnancy, and you know, it's far more, um, it, it's literally a picture um, of how we and him are, are born again. So let me, let me switch here to, to kind of the essence of what I'm sort of driving at. It's this last verse that Mary, it's, it's truly Mary's response as a young girl. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be unto me according to your word. So I want to take a look at uh, Mary's heart posture here. And, and I would also, I think, um, say there is something in this uh, almost upside-down kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, that the, the degree to which we carry our own um, self-promotion or self-aggrandizement or even the seeking after self-comforts or our own, uh, our own will, our own way, is the degree to which God cannot use us. And now if you flip that over, the degree to which uh, we are carrying sort of um, a heart posture of humility, a heart posture of dependence, a heart posture of, of waiting upon the Lord is the degree to which he can take and promote us. He loves to take the most difficult area, the most broken area, the most fragile area, and actually infuse it with his strength. And I would actually say to you, the area in your life that is most painful and difficult is probably the area that he wants to show up and use most powerfully. Because that is the way God works. So Mary has this heart. <laughs> and it's, she, is, she would be discarded by all others. She would be um, not even acknowledged by people. And yet she is the one that God chooses from eternity past. I mean, that is so beautiful. Uh, Abby and I... Um, this is kind of funny, but Abby and I watch a show called Master Chef. We just finished another season. And there's this um, uh, kind of an arrogant British guy named uh, Gordon Ramsay. And I, I so enjoy watching him. Um, but, and he's kind of a, he's a wild man, and he's, he's cussing and doing all kinds of things. And I'm not advocating any of that at, at all. But, but here's what's so neat about the show. This is so important. The people who create the show uh, interview the contestants. They're, they're, they're becoming chefs, and they're cooking, and 
um, they're, they're competing then in, in their food. And what the people do is, is they interview each of these contestants, and the contestants who are going, oh, I got this figured out. Oh, I'm the best. Oh, I can do this. Oh, I'm ready for it. Uh, are kind of on one hand, and then you have these other people who are competing, and they're always like, well, I, I hope I'm doing okay. You know, I'm giving it my best. Um, I hope they like what I just made. And, and uh, guess who ends up rising to the top? The latter. It is absolutely amazing to me. And now, of course, this is Hollywood, so they've seen the end of the show, and I'm sure they play on our emotions, and the people who are acting arrogant, they're filming, and they're going, they're, they're sort of baiting that arrogance out of them and that pride out of them, and then they show us, and it's just, it's so funny. But it's amazing. In the seasons that Abby and I have watched, the ones who always rise to the top are the ones who carry a humility and a teachability. Always. It's like there's something in the DNA of heaven. I don't even fully comprehend it, but there's something beautiful in the DNA of heaven, in the DNA of who God is, who Christ Jesus is, and who the Holy Spirit is, that when you are able to bow a knee in humility and contrition, when you are able to surrender your life before him, that the very power and presence of Jesus is able to come and be most uh, glorified in and through you. And what we have here is this little 13-year-old broken, illiterate girl who is absolutely no nothing, and God picks her to glorify, I mean, the greatest story ever told. The very, you know, Caesar Augustus is sitting in his palace doing whatever, thinking he is so grand and so important, and he and all his wise men miss that the angel Gabriel is showing up to this young girl. All the religious leaders of the day, all the great important pompous people in Jerusalem, all the ones who are, are all over even the planet at this moment are missing this sun rising, this dawn of a new era that is all hinging on this little, humble, broken, 13-year-old girl. And I think you get something that is so important in the character of our God right here. If you feel broken today, if you feel insignificant today, if you feel cast aside today, I would actually encourage you to begin to uh, sort of bear that before the Lord because those are the areas that he wants to come and infuse with strength and, and use for his greatest glory and your greatest good. And I would also invite you to look at those areas uh, that you're potentially most ashamed of or that cause the greatest hurt or the greatest pain because those are the areas that he can come and work most powerfully in. That's the gospel story. He is always looking from eternity past, from the bookends of eternity, the beginning to the end. That's how we started with 1 Peter. He is literally looking, and the ones that he takes and the ones that he uses most powerfully are the ones who are most humble, most teachable, most contrite, like this little Mary. You know, I'm convinced that we're going to get to heaven, and I'm actually doing a, a memorial for a dear friend later today, and, and I'm convinced each of us, that when we, when we uh, cross that line into eternity, that we're going to get to eternity and we're going to look around and go, oh my goodness, I thought they were so important and they're the least. And the ones that we thought were least important are suddenly the most. Because there's something about the kingdom of heaven that is not impressed with the things that we're impressed with. 
And it's not drawn to the things that we're drawn to. And God loves to take the busted and make something beautiful out of it. He loves to take what we look at and would cast aside and pull it back and use it to, to glorify himself through it most powerfully. It's the ultimate underdog story. We, we as Americans love the underdog story, right? We're always making movies about you know, the underdog story. Why? It's a reflection of the heart of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the one who takes the underdog story and infuses it with his strength and his presence and glorifies himself in it and through it. And and there is an element when we are uh, sort of pompous and self-assured, we don't need God, and guess what? God doesn't need us. And when we are humble and those knees are bowed, then all of a sudden he can take and he can use and he can work in and he can work through. So remember, Mary's heart posture, may it be to me according to your word. So I want to look at Mary's yes, because what happened here um, in in that last verse, 138 of of Luke, is literally Mary is saying yes. And I want to look at five things that Mary says yes to in this moment. The first thing that Mary is saying yes to is an unwed pregnancy and horrible uh, social stigma. So literally in that day, she would have been um, drug out of the city once they found out she was pregnant, and they'd have picked up rocks, and they'd have hit her with rocks, and they would have killed her. If Joseph would have left her side at any point, they would have uh, stoned her to death. She was literally um, saying yes when she said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. She was saying yes to a whole life of that. In other words, there is, um, there is a place in Scripture that after Jesus is, is crucified and then resurrected that Christians recognize who Mary is, and there's some history even of Mary uh, being in the church of Ephesus with John, and there's some different uh, possibilities that happened. But there is never a time where God vindicates Mary before uh, all the world. He actually calls her, and Mary, as this little 13-year-old girl, commits to carry being totally misunderstood. She carries it for her, her whole life. And now we look back and we sort of make assumptions because we don't misunderstand her, but she walked misunderstood her entire life. The second thing Mary said yes to was raising the Son of God. Can you imagine the enormous responsibility there? Can you imagine when he ran out to Joseph's workshop and cut his hands on Joseph's tools? Or can you imagine when he fell and skinned a knee? You know, he, he was fully human, so we, we tend to think of Jesus as not human. He was God, but he came and embraced full humanity. That means, you know, a, a normal mom, when a child falls or something happens, it's like, <gasps> can you imagine if it was God? Can you imagine? I mean, just go there kind of a second and like, can you imagine? You're responsible. Like, raise God. I mean, you hear me? You think you, you got nervous about, you know, your kids if you have kids or you've seen people get nervous about something that happens. Can you imagine if you are shouldering the responsibility to raise Jesus? I mean, she was the yes that she was saying yes to in that moment is absolutely mind-boggling. And, you know, parents, we have such this thing that, well, we got to raise them right. Can you imagine how Mary felt? Got to raise this boy right. The third thing that Mary was saying yes to is 
a life, a, a simultaneous life of extremes, the most exultant exultation and the greatest pain. She was saying yes to absolutely both extremes. I've, I've been listening this week um, to uh, the song, Mary, Did You Know? I love that song. And Abby got me turned on, my wife Abby got me turned on to this um, group called Pentatonics. And they have, this, um, they have this song that they do all a cappella, I think. But it's Mary, it, Mary, did you know? You have got to listen to it. And I love it because it is theologically on point. I mean, it is theologically so good. And it's actually taking some of this and interacting with Mary, did you know? When you kiss your baby boy, you're kissing the face of God. It actually calls him in the song, the great I am. I mean, it's such a good song. Oh, my goodness. But Mary is literally saying yes to this life of great exaltation and great pain. The fourth thing that she is saying yes to is holding this little baby, Jesus, and walking with him, launching him into manhood, and then launching him into ministry. Uh, think for a minute. She watched him uh, break bread and feed the multitudes. She would have watched him or at least heard about him walking on water. She would have watched him heal the leper. She would have watched him raise the dead. And yet there's a passage in Matthew 12 where he, he kind of uh, turns his back on her. He goes, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And leaves them outside. And it's the, will, the one who does the will of God. There's a, you know, this, this sort of a thing that Mary walks down where she's, she's holding this baby and then launches him. And then, fifthly, she says yes to the crucifixion. She was the only person who was there when Jesus was born. And she was the only person there Excuse me. She was the only person who was at both Jesus' birth and Jesus' death. She saw the bookends of Jesus' life. Now, I would suggest that she probably didn't fully understand the crucifixion. She didn't understand what was going to happen to Jesus on, on Calvary. But she knew something of it because the prophet Simeon had actually said to her, and in, in it's the end of Luke 1, I think, or Luke 2. But he, said, he looked at her and he said, and a sword will pierce your soul also. So she knew, she had some revelation that this was the Lamb of God, and, and lambs in Hebrew and Mosaic law were actually killed to cover sin. So she knew at some level that Jesus was headed towards this type of death. She would literally watch all the pompous leaders in Jerusalem turn against Jesus. She'd watch everyone hate her son. She'd watch everyone reject her son. And she walked with him while he was tortured and beaten and ultimately crucified. She stood there and watched it. The memorial that I'm doing later today is of a 27-year-old young man, dear friend of mine, that just passed away. And I've been walking with his mom and his dad and watching her pain over losing her son is excruciating. Mary had to live knowing that she would ultimately lose her son, Jesus, and watch him go to a cross and die. Now, I want to talk about Mary's yes, sort of the, the larger picture of it, but I want to make something very clear. The yes of all time happened in a little garden called Gethsemane, and Jesus wrestled with God, and at the end of it, he said, not my will, but your will be done. 
And that yes is the yes that allows all of us in Jesus for all time to say yes. That yes is the yes that allowed Mary, as this little 13-year-old girl, to actually say yes to him. This is the yes that predicated all yeses. Now, I don't think for a minute that Mary knew everything. I think absolutely she was a sinner. I think she was prone to doubt and to worry and to fear. But she said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be unto me as you have said. This is the upside-down kingdom that doesn't focus on the great or the beautiful or the rich or the educated. No, no, no. This is the one who sort of takes this 13-year-old teenager from the poverty of Nazareth to the riches of heaven. This is the ultimate sort of underdog story where Mary says yes and God moves on her. Can you imagine if Mary said no? Just think about that for a minute. From eternity past, if God knows the bookends, we talked about his sovereignty, and then you have our freedom in the context of God's sovereignty. He knew that Mary would say yes, because he knew from eternity past, but she could have said no. And here's where it gets personal for you and I today, right now, is we all are faced with a choice. Will we say yes to this holy God? It's not just a one time Um, Because I think we surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus. We take up our cross and follow him. We accept him into our heart. But then there's a daily yes. So let me give you an example from my life. Um, If you all have walked with me for any length of time, you know I'm in a one-year Bible and call you to join me there. I also have a five-year journal. And in my five-year journal, I have a one-page sheet um, of my sort of morning uh, declarations. And those morning declarations for me are simply like a compass. They keep me oriented. They, they remind me of who I am. They remind me of what I'm supposed to be about. And they're just things that I've set before the Lord over the last probably 10 years, that this is who I am, this is what he's called me to be about, this is what I'm doing. And it's kind of like just a true north compass heading that keeps me from you know, veering off in the wrong direction. I'm literally declaring some things over my life. And I'm not going to share them all with you, but I want to share my first two lines. Here's how it goes. I have given up my own way. I have taken up my cross and I follow Jesus. That's my yes. Second line, I have been crucified with Christ. Jesus lives in me and through me. Mary had to say yes on this particular day in front of that angel Gabriel, but then she had to get up every day and say yes again. Yes, Jesus, I'll walk with you. Yes, Father, I will walk with you. Even when I don't understand, I'll walk with you. Even when I don't like it, I'll walk with you. Even when I'm in pain, I'll walk with you. Even when I'm disappointed, I'll walk with you. Even when I distrust where we're going, I choose to bow my knee and trust in you. That was the power of Mary's yes. My dear friend, Clive Calver, who's in the back, put me on to an English hymn that has just meant so much to me this week. It's a guy by the name of F.W. Faber, and he wrote um, a hymn called The Will of God. And there's one little stanza in it, and, and here's how it goes. He hath breathed into my soul... So uh, he, Jesus, God, has breathed into my soul a special love of thee. I I love that because it's saying literally, I love God um, because he first loved me, right? He breathed into my soul a special love of of thee, a love to lose my will in his, and by that loss be free. A love to lose my will in his, 
and by that loss be free. Mary's yes, when she says to Gabriel, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me according to your word, is a yes where she loses her will. And by that loss, she finds this great freedom. The question for us this Christmas is where is your yes to him? Where are those areas where your heart's gotten hard or you distrust the Lord? Those areas of pain, those areas of disappointment, those areas of heartache. I want to pray for us, and if you're online, please join us. Adam, perhaps you'll come back up. Let's bow, lift our heads, and have a quiet moment. Father, I am convinced that the crux of the Christian life boils down to, is it going to be my way or your way? Is it going to be my will or your will? It boils down to Mary's simple 13-year-old yes, where she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be unto me as you have said. As eyes are closed, if there's someone here today who would need to surrender their life to the Lord Jesus, every eyes in the room are closed. If that's you, would you raise a hand, make eye contact with me? There's someone online who's watching. We've got Patrick and Nikki on there facilitating. Reach out to them and they'll get you connected. For the others of us who are already in Jesus, online or in the room, I suspect that there's areas where we have not done like Mary did and issued that courageous yes, I am the Lord's servant. May it be unto me as you have said. Father, I pray that as we head into this Christmas season, that you would mark our hearts and mark our lives with the yes of this little girl. As we worship with Adam and Missy, perhaps there's an area in your heart or in your life where you know you're not saying yes to him. Let's worship together, and I'd invite you just in that quiet place in your home or here with us to open your hands, to open your heart, and to say yes to the Lord Jesus.